Hello, you are listening to The Wellness Project with Des. I'm your host, Desiree, a mental health therapist and holistic wellness coach. On my podcast, I interview experts in the field of mental health and wellness, as well as those who share their firsthand accounts of their mental health journeys. These interviews will give you many tips, tools, and strategies to improve your mental health, as well as give you hope, support, encouragement, and inspire you on your own personal mental health and wellness journey. Thanks so much for being here. I would greatly appreciate it if you took a moment to leave me a review on iTunes and leave the podcast five stars on Spotify. It really helps the podcast to grow, which in turn helps me to keep bringing on amazing guests and spreading mental health and wellness education and support. And make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss an episode. Hello, you are listening to The Wellness Project. I'm your host, Des, and this is episode number 135. On today's episode, I speak with Debbie Gail Zane about her eldest son, Alex. He was diagnosed with a serious mental illness. He became addicted to drugs and alcohol, and he later passed away at the age of 26. So I do want to give a bit of a trigger warning here for child loss. Debbie's story is a story of love, loss, and finding purpose in pain. This is a very vulnerable and powerful conversation. I'm so grateful to Debbie for coming on and sharing her story. I think it's going to help so many people because I don't think it's something that we talk about enough. So I'm really thankful that she's here today. Help me welcome Debbie. All right, everyone. I am here with Debbie. Debbie, thank you so much for joining me today. You're welcome. Thank you for having me as a guest. Absolutely. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. And I I really appreciate you coming on and sharing your story because we are talking about the death of your son, but prior to that, his mental health issues and his addiction issues. So I really appreciate you coming on and being open about that. Thank you. Thank you. I'd love to get us started if you could introduce yourself, who you are, and tell us your story as much or as little as you feel comfortable sharing. Sure. My name is Debbie Gale Zane, and I am an author and a life coach and a mom. Uh, The story of the love and loss of my son is actually, it's heartbreaking, but I know so many others out there are dealing with very similar circumstances and it's not an easy um, situation to to go through. So a little bit about my journey, how it started with my son. So I have three children. Um, I'm a single mom of three. My son that suffered with mental illness and addiction is my oldest. And at about age 17, he was in his senior year in high school and he had Prior to him coming to me with any kind of, you know, mental illness struggles, his childhood seemed pretty normal. He was really uh, social. He had a lot of friends. He was really active in sports, soccer, and then later he ran track and cross country in high school. None of it prepared me for the day that he came to me. It was the day after Thanksgiving when he was 17 years old, it was that evening, it was the Friday evening, and I was in my bedroom and he came to me. I'll never forget that time. He told me that he had been having thoughts of ending his life. 
And he described to me how he had thought about killing himself. He described it in great detail. He told me that he had attempted it several times. It took every ounce of my energy to remain calm and be that safe space for him that I had always been where he could come and confide in me and, and to not to not overreact, to not, you know, start screaming and yelling and shouting and scare him, but to remain calm and loving and supportive when inside it was really very difficult. That led to a hospitalization that was about three and a half weeks uh, in a mental uh, mental hospital. It was a specific hospital just for uh, psychiatric care because he was still a minor. He wasn't able to be admitted into the psychiatric unit in the in the regular hospital. So it was a special hospital. It was pretty in-depth. And that's where I found out that his diagnosis was schizoaffective disorder. And at the time, I had no idea what that was. And I didn't know anybody else who had a child or who had a loved one or who had a friend or anybody who had suffered from it. So it all felt overwhelming at the time. And I had two other kids who were, they're all 20 months apart. That began the long journey of mental illness and later addiction. My journey involved in the beginning fighting for his healing, fighting to find the right doctors for him, battling with his father, who I had been divorced from for a while, about finding a doctor for him, finding the right doctor for him. It was battles over him seeing therapists, him having any kind of treatment, medications. It was very difficult in the beginning. It was very difficult in throughout the journey. But in the beginning, it was so new and fresh to me that I did not know how to navigate the circumstances. You know, when you become a parent, there is no manual that can can prepare you for this. Even all the parenting books out there, usually it's not dealing with this. At the time, like I said, I didn't know anybody else who was going through it. Within a year after that first hospitalization, I found out that he had been using drugs. In in the hospitalization, they told me he had been using marijuana, but it didn't sound like it was more than that. But in the upcoming year, he turned to more and more drugs. And I was kind of warned that that can happen, that many times the mental health medications can have bad side effects that they don't like, or they're not the right medications, and it takes a while to find them, and that many people go off their medications and and turn to something that can just numb them out. That's what he was doing. In the first several years, I would say there were, I don't know, five hospitalizations, maybe six hospitalizations. Later, we sought out treatment centers as well for the drug use. There was one year where he had been in and out of treatment centers three different times After the third time, they recommended to me that he go into a like group type of home called an Oxford house. And that was one of the hardest decisions that I ever made was to tell him that he couldn't come home, that he needed to go 
into an Oxford house. And they, they explained to me that at his age, which at that point was about 19, that every time he would come home and come back into the same environment, he would fall back into his old patterns and he was relapsed in drugs. And it was very common for overdoses to happen, especially after somebody had been through treatment and been off of the drugs and then went back to using at their old doses. A lot of times that's when an overdose would happen. And they said it's more likely to happen. I keep letting him back into the same home environment. And so it was so hard because he fought against it. So that was the beginning of him living apart, living outside of the home. Finding a place to live was was a challenge during the time. So was our battles with overdosing. So despite wherever he was living and whatever treatment he had, he almost overdosed and I almost lost him a number of times. This was probably in his early 20s. There were a number of scares. It was really scary. As a parent, I think that's where a lot of the fear comes from. In the first couple of years on our journey through mental illness and addiction, fear was running my life. I wasn't even aware that that was happening. I wasn't even aware that fear was running my life. I think I just got used to it. I got used to this new way of living. I didn't choose it. None of us chose it. I didn't realize until there was some there was a moment where I was with a group of friends and they were actually supportive friends. They were in an Al-Anon program. I had invited them over and my son had just been hospitalized for about the fourth or fifth time. And I received a call from the hospital to talk to his doctor. Everything went great. And as soon as I got off the phone, I just broke down in tears. It was in that moment that I realized that I wasn't living my life. I wasn't present in my life. That was a huge awareness that got me to really change the way I was thinking about things, change my thoughts, change my underlying beliefs, change to being present, to really enjoying the moments that I had with my children, enjoying my moments that I had with him, really making that shift. And that didn't mean that the rest of the journey was easy. It just meant that I was able to navigate the ups and downs a little bit better. And it's not to say that if there was a big scare that I didn't feel the pain in that moment, that I didn't have those difficulties. I did. It's just I didn't live all of my nights living in fear all of that time. As the years went on into his 20s, he was living in different environments, different renting rooms from different places and in and out of treatment centers, in and out of hospitals. His brother and sister and I and him were all really, really close. So it really impacted our entire family. There probably wasn't too many times as he got into his mid-20s that we saw him sober. Many times he was on uh, some kind of drugs, or if he wasn't on drugs, it was, you know, a lot of alcohol. And we, he lived for family. So he was very, very close to all of his family. He'd get very excited every time we'd have a family gathering. But generally, when he was present, he was on something. And we just kind of got used to it. By that time, it seemed like he 
either from the drugs or from he also had a seizure disorder, everything put together probably had a little bit of brain damage and he would repeat things over and over and over. And we just kind of got used to it. When he was uh, 26, he had really spent a a lot more time in treatment. He had put himself in the hospital, he had put himself in rehabs, and he was doing some outpatient programs virtually over the pandemic. We really felt a little bit hopeful. And we got together, we all got together as a family on New Year's Day of 2022. It was the first time that he was completely sober in years, very many years. He actually seemed happy about a month prior to that. He was out walking because he didn't drive. So he walked a lot. He was always active because he used to do soccer and track and everything. So he loved to walk and it was a coping skill for him too. And he was out walking and he he met somebody who became his girlfriend and they clicked and she had schizophrenia and he had schizoaffective disorder and he was really excited about her. He was really happy that time that we saw him on New Year's Day. And that did not prepare us for what I found out less than a week later. He had been looking for a new place to live and he was kind of in between places and it was a big snowstorm and he had he had just looked at a place that he thought he was really excited about. He called me on the phone At this point, I was living an hour away, so I was kind of more out in the country, and he was more in town where he could walk to everything. And he called me. He was really excited, and, you know, we got off the phone, and I didn't hear from him the next day. And I tried reaching out a bunch of times. I asked his brother and sister if they had heard. Nobody could reach him. The day after that, I got a phone call at 9 a.m. from the police officer saying, He was sorry to do this over the phone, but with the big snowstorm and he's seeing I lived an hour away, he couldn't come out to me, but that my son had been found dead. And um, sorry, (laughs) it's emotional still. Um, At that point, I really felt like my heart had stopped and... I remember the moments after that almost feeling like I was looking down upon what was happening from outside of myself. I remember getting my my parents on the phone so that they could help me listen to what the police officer was saying, uh, having my partner come sit with me. And then after we got off the phone with the officer, we called my children and told them and um it was really difficult because we had almost lost him so many times but we didn't before and he kept going and I think a part of me thought he would just keep going I was grateful that I didn't spend many of the years living in that fear so that I could enjoy him and love him and be present with him and my other kids and have that relationship. So I didn't live in that constant fear. So I think a part of me just thought because he, he made it through the, he made it through so much. I thought he would just keep going. 
Oh, Debbie, I'm I'm so sorry for your loss. That's that's so difficult. I can't even imagine what you and your family had gone through. And like you said, having so many of those ups and downs and that must've been so shocking, but I'm, I'm glad that you were able to be present and have that close relationship with him, despite his difficulties and his challenges. And I think it's really hard. I think people do kind of live in that fear when they are, you know, when they are dealing with a family member, um, especially a child that's dealing with mental health issues and addiction issues. I think that that fear can be so consuming. So I think it's, it's great that you were able to be present with him and have that relationship and not live in that fear. And I don't think that even living in that fear can prepare you for that shocking death. I don't think it's a helpful place to be anyway. That's the thing is nothing can really prepare you for that as a, as a parent, it's a big loss. And why start living there now while your child is alive? Why not enjoy what you have when you have it? Absolutely. And as you were talking and just saying how close, you know, you and your three children were, I was wondering, obviously this affected your other kids, but in what ways did it affect them? What ways were you seeing it impact them? And were they open about that with you? Or were they trying to kind of stay strong for you? Like, how did that look? That's a really good question. They were all so close. So they they cared about him and worried about him a lot. And I know in their 20s, my younger son, who was my middle one, he he went off to college when he was 18. And so there was that geographical distance, but he visited often. And, and the two of them hung out together and did stuff together. And honestly, the last few years of their life, I don't think a day went by when they weren't in communication. But they were able to learn to set boundaries with love so that they would not lose themselves in what Alex was going through and that they could still have a life and honor themselves. And that allowed them to support him better. That said, they did a lot for him. I know that there was one instance where Alex had taken drugs and he was two hours from home with some other people. And I guess the other people went on a drug run and never came back and he was stranded out there. And so he called my other son who was just starting a new job after graduating from college and lived two hours away. And my son had to drive two hours to pick up Alex and then drive two hours to bring him home and then drive two hours to go back to his home. So that said, they would, they would do anything for each other. But they still had to be true to themselves. Oh, absolutely. And I think it's really impressive how much the three of you had created those strong boundaries. And can you talk about that a little bit? Because I know that you had mentioned that you got guidance on not having him be in the home. And that kind of goes into, you know, not enabling him and creating those boundaries. So can you talk about that a little bit, how you and your son and your daughter were able to create strong boundaries while still loving him and still supporting Alex? Yeah, we created boundaries on a number of things. I know, I know one boundary that I worked with my daughter on is you know, when they were in their 20s, because she she was local, you know, when my middle one went off to college, she was still close by and she was working and she had a car and he was calling her daily almost to take to take him around 
places in her car and he was pretty much on drugs most of the time. And there were some difficult incidences in, in, in the stores when she would take him in and she would tell me about it and it was really weighing on her. So we really had to talk about setting boundaries for, you know, how could she still be there and support him, but not compromise herself, not exhaust herself to the point of she has to have her life too. She has to work. She has a partner that herself that she lives with. It's kind of that in between, like you hear about like on the plane, right? You have to put the life preserver on yourself first, the mask on yourself first before you can help somebody else. And so it's being able to take care of themselves enough so that they can support him, but not to the point where it's just all consuming, right? Because there has to be a balance. I did the same thing. Like I talked about with when I had him the first time move out, there were a few different places he lived in along the way. And then he was in between supposed to be home for about two weeks, but he was home for six months and he was, there was so much drug use and everything. It was really getting out of hand. Uh, and he was pawning things and things were just escalating. And so I, I talked to him and I, I explained that I, I can't, I can't have this. I can't live with this in the house and that the best thing would be for him to, you know, really find another place like he was trying to do and that I could help him and support him. My family and I did support him financially because he wasn't capable. And I know that's a decision. Sometimes that's a hard decision for parents to make or not to make. And, every situation is different. There isn't a right and wrong. And, and maybe there isn't always that ability to do that. Uh, it's, it's really boundaries about what feels right to you, for you honoring yourself. And it's different than a wall. It's different than like shutting yourself off. You're not closing your heart to the other person. This is a big thing that I have explained to other people is very different than putting up a wall. It's, it's a boundary for yourself and your own well-being, but it still allows your your love to flow from your heart to their heart and them to feel it. And so that that's that's the important thing. Oh yeah, it's it's so important. I love the way that you explain that. That's so beautiful. And I think a lot of people do think a boundary is that wall, but I think you explained that perfectly. You had mentioned Al-Anon earlier, and I'm wondering what kind of support because this was such just a difficult difficult time for you and your family what kind of support were you receiving during this time and what kind of support were your son and daughter receiving during this time yeah so Alanon was definitely some of the support especially early on that I was receiving I went to meetings probably early on like six times a week it was before the pandemic, so they were all in-person meetings. And the best thing was meeting other friends that were going through a lot of similar experiences. The only thing is, it's in Al-Anon, it's more focused on having a loved one with you know, addiction to alcohol or drugs, not necessarily mental illness. I have found they go hand in hand most of the time. And so even if there isn't a diagnosed mental illness, there usually is some sort of a mental illness. So I still found that bond. And even though many of the other people could have been dealing with a spouse or a parent, I still found it very helpful. But what I actually found the most helpful in Al-Anon 
was serving. Like I eventually became a sponsor and sponsored other people. I became a group representative and shared meetings and led meetings. And I went to conferences and volunteered. So I did a lot that actually helped me the most, but having the, having those friends, having those connections was, was really good. I think other things that helped is uh, NAMI, which is the National Alliance for the Mentally Ill. They have a lot of online resources. They have, uh, depending where you live, there are meetings, and that is focused on mental illness, whereas Al-Anon is focused on the addiction. So it's kind of nice if you look into both of those. The other thing that I began doing for myself was a lot of educational self-growth type of programs. I I went through some certifications to do life coaching, but I also just did a lot of programs, a lot of audio video programs, participated in virtual and in-person events that were like geared towards self-growth. So they were just things that made my inner self stronger. So it wasn't specifically geared towards, you know, having a child or a loved one with mental illness or addiction, but it was specifically geared for helping myself and healing myself and strengthening my inner self. Oh, that's really great. And I'm glad that you were able to find those supports. And so my other question is that what kind of support were you receiving from family, from friends? And I'm just wondering from the standpoint of a lot of people know someone that is struggling with a family member's addiction or mental illness or the loss of their child. And I I think a lot of people don't know what to do don't know how to help, don't know how to support. Do you have any advice for anybody on how they can support someone through a difficult time with their child or family member? I think one of the biggest things is to just be that safe space where they can land, where if they feel like sharing, they can share, or if they just need a hug, they can have a hug and that they feel safe that there's no judgment. Because that that's a really big thing. I know a lot of parents will start to blame themselves or question themselves or feel that in some way they're at fault or that they need to hide this. And so being that safe space where you are not providing any judgment at all and you're just being there, if they just want to vent or if they just want to share or if they just want to not talk and they just need a hug. So just being that loving, open support I think that's really great for people to know. And I think that's really great advice. The loss of a child is, I think I haven't experienced it, but I just think it's probably one of the most painful things that you can go through and that you can experience as, as a parent. And I know that you've talked a lot about finding meaning in your life and purpose through that loss and that love of Alex. And I'm just wondering how you were able to cope through that loss and were able to find that meaning and find that purpose and kind of what words of wisdom do you have for other parents that have lost a child? I think it is probably the worst experience that you can have as a parent is losing a child. In the beginning, it was really, really hard. I think it's so important to to do things that are gentle and comforting with yourself and taking good care of yourself. 
you want to allow yourself to feel whatever it is you're feeling. To do that, you have to like kind of be that safe space for yourself. In the beginning, I just did what I felt comfortable doing. And a lot of the things I did from the safe space of under my blankets, that's what I needed at that time. And I just didn't push myself to get out of those blankets. And the other way you can kind of support yourself too is just really grounding yourself. I'm really into like healthy eating and sweet potatoes and potatoes are really grounding. And so I did, I had a lot of things that were really healthy and especially sweet potatoes and potatoes because you're healing trauma. A loss like that is, is a trauma and you have to heal physically, emotionally, and on a soul level. Another thing that I really found helpful was things that brought me connection. There was different ways and that could be different for every person, but like connection through, you know, anybody else that I knew who lost a child. I know I I was in some other groups. And so some people, when they found out they had come forward and let me know they had lost a child. And so connecting with people like that, um, connecting with my children and sharing pictures and sharing memories and connecting with my son, speaking out loud to him. I, I spoke out loud to him every single night, educating myself. I learned about souls and what happens after they leave the physical bodies. You know, I wanted to understand what it was like for him and to know that he was at peace because I know he was not at peace when he was here. Knowing that he was now at peace gave me some comfort. I also found connection through reading. I read a lot of memoirs written by people who had lost. At first, I found ones where they had lost a child. And then when I ran out, I just read ones if they had lost loved ones, other family members, and I still found connection. That was really helpful, especially early on when I was under the covers a lot. I read I read a lot of memoirs. And at some point, I went through this really like soul searching experience of why am I here? What's my purpose? And it wasn't a conscious thing. Like I'm going to look for my purpose. It was more like I was just guided through this exploratory process of finding my purpose. And I was in that process. I was also led to uh, a book writing course where I didn't know why I was being led there. I had never thought about writing a book, but I was led to that as well. It also turned out that writing, writing a book, writing a memoir was, was healing for me. It was a really healing process. It gave me connection to Alex. It fulfilled that connection need that I had so much. And I feel like a lot of the memories that were coming back, even though I lived through them all, you know, I couldn't consciously just pull them all, but they were all flowing to me every night. And I know they were flowing from him. So I really had the connection during that. So I was guided to that. And then kind of when I was going through the soul searching and the purpose in amongst that time, what was clear to me is that my purpose was to, to be able to help parents who are on a similar journey to mine, because many times they feel alone, they lose hope, they relationship is breaking down with their child. They're living in fear and I know what it's like. And so I just knew that my purpose was to help them. You know, there was kind of a whole process I went through with, 
with no really having that deep knowing of what my purpose is, I think that that finding my purpose also facilitated healing. Oh, I love all of that. That is, that's so amazing. And I'm so glad that you were able to find purpose through such a tragedy and such a trauma. And I would love it if you could share with our listeners where they can find you all about your book. And I know you have a course as well. Yeah, absolutely. So my book is called Finding Peace and Purpose Amidst the Tears. And it's my journey of the love and loss of my son through his mental illness and addiction. And it's it's online at Amazon, Barnes and Noble, almost all the online retailers. I also have a, a website that has a little bit of information about my book as well. And then I have a another website that has my life coaching website where I have a little bit of information about myself and on both websites, there's a way to reach out and connect to me. I'm also on social media, on Facebook, on Instagram, on YouTube. You can reach out to me on any of those uh, channels. Or like I said, on my website, there's a connect reach me page. I do have a couple of courses. One is on turning your pain into your purpose. And another one is about finding peace and it it's geared towards for parents who are going through with a teen or adult child with mental illness or addiction. Oh, great. And everyone, I will have all those links in the show notes. So you could go check out everything Debbie has to offer and read her book. Debbie, I can't thank you enough for coming on and sharing your story and being so vulnerable with us. And it's such an important and powerful thing for people to hear. It's been such an important and powerful conversation. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you again for having me as a guest. Two weeks from today is actually Thanksgiving, if you can believe that. I feel like time is going by so fast. I can't keep up. Time is just completely escaping me. So we will take a break that week from the podcast. I will see you in three weeks, Thursday, November 30th, with another amazing guest. I am going to be speaking with Paul Bright all about sleep which is very timely as well because we just ended daylight savings time because now it's getting darker much earlier. It's dark when you wake up. It's dark when you get out of work. It's that kind of time for seasonal affective disorder. So I think it's going to be a great time to speak with Paul all about our sleep schedules and our routines and everything. So I will see you then in three weeks when I talk to Paul. I hope that you have a really great Thanksgiving. If you are celebrating, I hope that you have a great time with loved ones. But I know that the holidays can also be a very difficult time. So I am offering an emotional support group during this time. We will meet three times, once in November, once in December, and once in January. I think it's going to be a really great group and much needed during this challenging time. It can be very stressful for some people, especially when dealing with toxic family members and things like that that come up a lot of the pressures and stresses of the holiday season can be really difficult if you've lost someone so that can be a really triggering time so if you are interested in holiday hope an emotional support group for the holiday season you can sign up it is three meetings for just 140 dollars i will have the link to sign up in the show notes so make sure you go check that out And if you need the support, I really hope you give yourself this gift and I hope to see you there.
I'll talk to you in three weeks, but keep an eye on your email because I will be sending out blogs in the next few weeks all about the holiday season. I just posted one about self-care during the holiday season, and I'm also posting another one about how to set healthy boundaries with loved ones during the holiday season. So keep an eye out for that. 